Hello and welcome to Mainstream by Pixel Sift. My name is Gianni and joining me is Adam here at Pixel Sift. We've made our name delivering some of the best indie games coverage uh, for games made in Australia and around the world. And this is Mainstream episode 11. And on Mainstream, we discuss those high profile blockbuster games we've been playing or waiting for since 1997 and what we've been reading in the news. Now, Adam, tell me, what have you been playing recently? What has been consuming all of your time? Oh, look, I've finished Final Fantasy VII Remake by uh, Square Enix, which uh, came out on Friday officially around the world. But uh, I got a copy about a week ago early because it got released early in Australia and Europe uh, due to COVID-19. And I've been playing a game called My Friend Pedro, which is out now on the PlayStation 4. Australia's best video game podcast. Subscribe to Pixel Sift on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever podcasts are found. All right, let's get into it. Final Fantasy VII Remake. It's It's been in the wings since at least the PlayStation 3 era. We're now in the PlayStation 4. It came out a little bit earlier in Australia, uh, which is an amazing surprise. Um, and you've finished it now. Tell me about Final Fantasy VII Remake. Oh my god. Okay. Um, so I feel like you can't really talk about Final Fantasy VII Remake without talking about the original and I guess the impact on culture that the original had. So when Final Fantasy VII came out in 1997, it was, I guess, the system-defining game of the PlayStation 1, um, a game that sold that console to millions of homes um, and a game that was mammothly successful. It kind of exploded the idea of the Japanese RPG for Western audiences in a way that hadn't happened before. It put Final Fantasy on the map as a franchise that people um, would become, you know, enamored with and obsessed with over the years. And it it kind of created um, one of video games' uh, most impactful villains um, in history that I feel like it's, you know, Sephiroth is the villain of Final Fantasy VII. Um, and I feel like Sephiroth's shadow stands over that franchise as a whole and has impacted it over the decades since Final Fantasy VII came out. Um, and the story beats and the story moments that happened in that original game, I think, cast a long shadow over that franchise and over video games in general. I think we're only just starting to get to a point now where younger people who have been playing games have grown up in a world where they weren't around for Final Fantasy VII's impact and its cultural um touchstones that that kind of defined games except now remake has come out and we're going to live through it all again um so final fantasy 7 remake is a really really ambitious retelling of final fantasy 7 um but rather than telling the entire story of the original game it's decided to grab the first five to six hours of final fantasy 7 which all take place in a city called midgar and expand that into a 40 hour plus game Um, It really zones in on a lot of um, characters in that early part of the game and fleshes them out and develops them. There are multiple moments where this game diverges from the original story and kind of tells new stories and new ideas within the plotting of the original five to six hours of Final Fantasy VII. Um, And I think it will have a really interesting impact on fans of this game. I think a lot of People will be split on whether this is the Final Fantasy VII uh, redo that they wanted or whether they wanted um, something more original to the the first game. 
I personally think that there is so much interesting stuff going on with this game. It's kind of confusing and fantastic um, the way that they are approaching what is a remake. There is a kind of meta narrative that I feel like the games makers are having with themselves and with people that have been along for the ride for 20 years about what is a remake. Um, what is remaking a game about and what do you do when you remake a game and what um, onus do you have on yourself as someone who's like shepherding this story to retell it in interesting ways it's it's very fascinating i I'm, I'm blown away with how much i actually took out of this game i kind of went in not following much about it after its initial kind of e3 reveals wanting to kind of not have any hope and when i found out it was going to be episodic and then we're going to change the combat systems of the game. I kind of got a little bit um, ready to be disappointed, but it's so nice to be so surprised by this game. It's really phenomenal. Um, one of the, I guess one of the interesting things about it is, of course, we have had lots of remakes now. We're kind of at that era where a lot of those late 90s games um, are, are being remade. They're being ported over to different systems. And, you know, recently we have seen, um, you know, HD uh, sort of re-releases of some of the games. Final Fantasy VIII, the, one of the sequels to this game, has recently come out on the Switch and, and PlayStation with higher graphics. But this is a complete sort of reimagining of what, the game was um what do you i guess what do you think have they kind of captured um in this uh and and sort of of the feel of the original game and, and what have they done i guess better or worse yeah i i feel like the feel of this is it's the final fantasy 7 that you remember um but not the final fantasy 7 that you played if that makes sense I think it's very easy especially when you i mean like i played the original final fantasy 7 when i was 13 I think when you're playing older games, retro games like that as well, you have to abstract a lot out of the story and out of the narrative. You know, the original Final Fantasy VII um, used pre-rendered backgrounds that were, you know, majorly shot really high up in isometric view as you kind of worked your way through them. So you used your imagination to paint a picture of what this world looked like, what it felt like. Um, and some of the story beats, which were very, you know, subtle, might be a couple of lines for characters. Um, you know, you would flesh out in your own mind what this story meant for you. But Final Fantasy VII Remake kind of goes and grabs those ideas that you were kind of fleshing out in the back of your mind and really blows them up for you. You get to kind of walk through the slums of Midgar and really feel like you're in this space that feels impactful. Um, you know, just looking at the skybox of those worlds is so fascinating, the way that they're built seventh heaven which is the bar that you maybe spend three minutes in in the original final fantasy 7 which is run by tifa and barrett um but here you get to spend hours in seventh heaven it feels like an actual place that's lived and you know breathed in um you know that's that's kind of the thing that really excites me the most about what i've taken away from this game is that just yeah that feeling of a lived in space that you know, beforehand was in my imagination. Now I'm seeing it brought to life on a scale and, and in a really expensive way that I haven't seen before in another game. It's it's really quite something else. Well, I, this, I know this is something you actually really can't do, but if you could think about this in a way uh, of a new player approaching this series without the history of playing it when you were 13, do you think it's a game that can stand on its own or does it rely on that sort of years of fleshing it out in your mind, building up in your head, talking with your friends at school about it? Does it work? Yes, absolutely. I think you could go into this with no concept of the original whatsoever and have a really good time. And that was kind of what was happening with my partner who was watching me play it over the last week, who has no history with Final Fantasy VII. 
knows nothing about the franchise, but would find themselves coming and sitting down to the couch and just being like, what is happening now in this game? I'm just going to watch you for the next three, four hours because I want to know where the story is going, what's happening here, um, who's that character. So it really, like, I, I think it's the perfect introduction to this character, to these characters and the story. Um, and I think that the combat system is so good and so enjoyable and feels like so much fun to play that I think that um, it's a real draw card for people that are new to the series. And I think that Square have been struggling for a really long time to kind of make Final Fantasy's active turn-based combat mechanics work in real time and in an action combat setting. They really tried to experiment with Final Fantasy 15, and I think it was a really unfun game to play in a combat sense. They just hadn't quite nailed it. Um, I think Final Fantasy 12 was a really good approach as well, using the Gambit system and kind of having you move around in a space and semi-automating your characters. But this feels like the first time they've actually nailed action combat really, really well for this sort of game. You know, the system involves you using a combination of small basic attacks uh, to charge up ATB gauges, which then allow you to cast your spells and more complex abilities. And then every character plays completely differently. Barrett is such a different character to Cloud in terms of movement and just combat schemes and how you approach combat with those characters. Swapping between characters in the middle of the battle feels really satisfying. It's just really incredible how they've made um, all the characters that you play with in this game feel unique, um, feel really enjoyable to play as. Um, and then the actual combat itself in this game, the boss fights are, are really challenging, tough, complex, and enjoyable. Um, that's the thing that I couldn't believe the most was that the combat system was so good that it really got its hooks into me as someone who really likes turn-based combat in, in, in RPGs to be able to play an action-based combat me- mechanic system that actually worked well for me was such a shock. I have a lot um, of friends who are who really balked at the idea of it not being turn-based um, when the game was announced and said that there was going to be some sort of hybrid system. But um, in, in sort of looking at the, the the documentation and what people have said, that the, the, the hybrid system or the old system that they've kind of emulated isn't really the same as what you would remember um, from the old from the olden days. Um, but I, I'm really curious as well, with all of it's kind of put together, um, you know, tell me about, I mean, it sounds like a lot has stood out to you in this particular game because we've been talking a little bit about it off mic, but um, what was some of those moments that really stood out to you that really kind of nailed the idea of what a Final Fantasy VII game should be? Yeah, um, well, outside of the combat, which is the whole game, um, which is fantastic, you know, there are there's a few moments and, you know, some very light early game spoilers here. Um, this game likes to uh, embellish elements um, that would have taken up a screen or two in the original Final Fantasy VII. So basically the plot of this game follows the arc of the early hours of Final Fantasy VII, note for note. Those are the big plot beats. But there's a few things that happen in between those plot beats that expand the story and tell new things. Um, one that really stood out for me is the walk to um, the uh, Shinra Reactor Number 5, which is the second bombing mission you go on in Final Fantasy VII really early on. Um, in the original Final Fantasy VII, I think it's maybe two or three screens that you walk through. One is like a vaguely looking screen of some scaffolding high up on the ground after you catch a train, and that's about it. In Final Fantasy VII Remake, that is an elaborate dungeon, which is suspended up in the sky as you're kind of taking up ladders to kind of get to this um, reactor. 
And along the way, it's you're kind of like on these scaffolding that's kind of like, I guess it's suspended below the plates. So Midgar is a tiered city where there is an upper plate where you can kind of rich people kind of live um, in kind of, I guess it's kind of like a nice combination of suburbia, but also kind of upper middle class kind of living. And then below the plates is an undercity full of slums that people kind of live in. Um, but the d- big difference between Final Fantasy VII, the original, and Final Fantasy VII, the remake, is um, the slums aren't in perpetual nighttime. So in the original Final Fantasy VII, the plate was so big that it blocked out the sun completely. In remake, they've realized that the sun sets. <laughs> and so you're going to see the sun and you're going to see sun time. So you get daytime in the slums. But as you're walking through this scaffolding, you realize that you have to turn off these giant lamps that power um lighting for the slums they're called sun lamps and you need to do that so that you can actually open a big gate so that you can get through um and so it becomes this really interesting narrative about turning off the sun lamps in the slums so that you can achieve your goals as eco-terrorists um and you know a lot of character tifa has a lot of apprehension about this and the impact that it'll have to the slums but decides that it's necessary for the greater good and it's just that sequence is like a really great way of just kind of building the story that's in this game kind of fleshing it out a little bit more really making it a bit more complex you know i really love that this game focuses on strongly on the idea of revolutionary violence and the importance of revolutionary violence as well when you have no other means to achieving goals to kind of create a better and more just world i really like that the game still leans into those themes that were in the original as well and makes these characters feel really complex about their actions that they take because they are essentially eco-terrorists trying to save the world um it it could have easily been walked back yeah it could have been and i feel like they didn't they leaned into it and and that i really enjoy and appreciate in this game a lot i think you know one of the other standout moments for me as a queer person is the attempt to make the wall market sequence a little bit better it's still not great um, for people who remember the original Final Fantasy VII. Wall Market is kind of like the red light district of the slums, and there is a sequence where Cloud has to dress up as a woman to sneak into a crime lord's base. Um, the original was filled with gay panic and kind of really just didn't handle things well. Um, the remake, I think, does a better job of it. It kind of takes more of what I would describe as like a queer eye angle to it. Um, there's some moments which I think are really positive in terms of gender expression and and beauty in specifically described by characters that I think, um, you know, are, are really positive. Um, but I think that there's also still some problematic elements in that area of the game in regards to um, sexualized violence and threats towards women that are kind of a bit icky. Um, but, you know, it's a step up from where we were in 1997, that's for sure. Um, hmm. Well, it's out now on the PlayStation 4. Well, the first part of it, I don't know what you're going to do until the next chapter comes out. Cause <laughs> I'm replaying the original on Switch. Yeah, I, flew, I played that before actually sort of coming out. I'm waiting for that to arrive. Uh, Final Fantasy VII Remake uh, available right now. Head back to 1997 or, or how you imagined Final Fantasy VII to be in your mind in 1997. This is Mainstream by Pixel Sift. 
Well, the second game, well, I guess the game that I've been playing is called My Friend Pedro. It's by Dead Toast Entertainment, and it's just come out on the PlayStation 4. It originally was uh, out on uh, Steam, available on, on the computer. It's been out for a little while uh, now, um, but it's a, it's a really interesting uh, sort of combat platformer is probably the way that I would describe it, but there are lots of uh, interesting sort of feelings and uh, sort of things that they're referencing to um, or sort of experiences that if you you kind of had a, a you know you would know these things as if you know them and if you don't then you probably would sort of pick up on them I wouldn't pick up on them in a way and, um, but um, yeah it's, it's quite an interesting sort of game not a game I would normally have have played um, generally but it is I've had a lot of fun with it so far yeah tell me tell me about it because from what I understand I've seen very little bits mm. um, and it seems like yeah, it's it's one of those games that that has lots of momentum and action. Yeah, so so how I would describe it is it's sort of like a score attack platformer. Um, it's a shooter, so it's sort of a twin stick shooter and a platformer as well. Um, so sort of picture this in your mind. And the idea is what you're trying to do is you're trying to build up the biggest sort of sequence. So in that you can also think of um, it, it's almost like a puzzler as well. So here's what here's why I would describe it. So if you've ever um, played these games, Hotline Miami. Uh, it seems like it's a very sort of strong influence in the actual thematics of the game. Um, also, the character Deadpool, I would describe as having quite a strong influence um, on this game. Um, but also, yeah, so, sort of those uh, games like uh, Max Payne as well. So there's like all of these sort of elements thrown into it. And the idea is basically you are a uh, a sort of a, 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 you're a killer effectively. Uh, you're being guided through the world by a, a sentient banana that may live in your mind, or who knows exactly. Uh, well, you will know very much at the end. Um, but basically, you're going on and taking out a whole bunch of different crime bosses. So if you think about it, like a lot of that sort of um, sort of anti-hero, sort of vigilante justice style games, um, and, and how you do it is you, you run through different platforms and um, you are basically trying to create a, the, the biggest sequence to get the biggest score as you go through. That's where the sort of the score attack element comes into it. Um, so what you do is you move through all the different platforms. There's really interesting elements in it as well where you, you know, so at one point you're on a skateboard um, and you're skateboarding through sort of a, a building site um, where you need to sort of uh, score as many kickflips as well as shooting and, and you go into sort of a bullet time mode. Uh, you can independently aim the sort of two different sticks. So if you've got two guns, you can kind of do split attacks. Um, and if you, if I think if you're a fan of games like um, or, or sort of genres like uh, John Wick or any of those sort of like gun carter style um, movies or, or, or TV shows, and then you really enjoy it. If you really like the character sort of Deadpool, then this character feels actually quite like a Deadpool analog. And I honestly think that if you changed out the main character uh, for Deadpool, it would totally still work. Um, it would totally make sense. Um, I wonder if actually maybe there was a, a, a pitch there potentially to make a Deadpool game and it got turned into something different. Um, and yeah, it's a, it's quite a fascinating sort of game, and I, I'm not the best at these sort of games, so um, you can see where people who get really good at this game, who would repeat the loop many, many times, would be able to rack up this massive, really impressive score. Um, but things that really sort of stood out to me, I guess, when playing this game, is that you can really see the way, um, what I saw is, is uh, in this, is that sort of that element of where people can brilliantly rerun levels again and again and again and get the perfect score and that when you get to the end of the level you would just see this amazing sort of sequence of um of events where you've perfectly nailed the timing because the enemies are always going to be placed in the same spot so in effect it is a puzzle game um and you, it's basically about completing that puzzle in the best time 
linking together those sequences as much as you can uh, in terms of shooting all the dudes um, and kind of getting to the end. Um, yeah, I think it's it's really it's really fun. It doesn't it doesn't really ask a lot of you. It's really forgiving uh, in the way that I played it as well. Um, so I never felt like when I died, I was being punished. I always felt like I had just sort of had to rethink the way that the puzzle had come together. Um, but yeah, really sort of fascinating look and it kind of a kind of kooky sort of style. I would say it's sort of, it is that sort of almost sort of semi sort of juvenile, you know, uh, you know, if, if you're a teen, uh, you might love this sort of thing. You're like, yes, I'm going out there and it's a big bad world and I'm getting revenge on, on the people who make the world worse. Um, there's a bit of that sort of power fantasy in there. Um, but yeah, really sort of really interesting take on a sort of a twin stick shooter and a sort of platform genre. That's really interesting to me. I, I guess when I think of like any sort of score chasing game mm. or a game that has that sort of mechanic, mm. I think about like replayability mm. and like why you should go back to previous levels to kind of chase the best score possible. And I'm wondering, are there any sort of mechanics or unlocks or things in this game that encourage you to replay elements of it again? collectibles that you would pick up i'm thinking almost like in celeste there would be the strawberries that would lead to kind of extra levels and b-sides and all that sort of stuff as well um is there something like that in there or is it really just the case of being like i want to nail this as good as i can not as far as i have seen it seems to be relatively straightforward it is mostly um you're going for your score and you do get like a grade at the end you know it's like almost like one of those jrpg Games or, or like Devil May Cry. Yeah, or, or like Devil May Cry. Yeah, exactly. You get an S rank at the end if you do a really good job. Uh, but one of the most interesting parts in it, um, one that really sort of stood out for me, actually is a sequence which seems highly um, influenced by uh, in, in the original Final Fantasy VII. I don't know if it's made it into the remake or not, um, but there is a, a escape sequence from the Shinra building where you're on a motorbike um, and you are attacking enemies um, coming at you on a motorbike while you have to sort of protect a truck. Um, and that sequence has sort of been translated into a side-scrolling um, sort of element where you've got a whole bunch of dudes on motorbikes attacking and you've got to move from side to side and shoot all your enemies. But instead of the truck you're having to protect, it's a, it's the boss fight that you have to sort of fight as you go along throughout that battle. So, like, I don't know if that was the influence. There's plenty of um, games and, and movies and stuff where you fight out people on a, on a highway on a motorbike. But um, just in the context of talking about Final Fantasy VII, it really reminded me of that particular sequence. Um, yeah, it's, it's, really, it's, it's really clever. And I, I, it's one of these games that I, I feel like would be so fun to watch someone who's really great at it um, but even if you're not at that level, it's still an amazingly enjoyable sort of experience if you wanted to play it. Yeah, cool. Because I feel like that's also one of the real tensions of these sorts of skill-based games as well as like creating that level of enjoyment that you can have with the game if you're not that great at it. Mm. Um, but then also making you feel like you've accomplished a lot as well along the way. And then leaving a lot of room there, like having a good skill ceiling so that if someone else, you want to watch someone else play on, say, Twitch or something like that, you can just be like, whoa, I have no idea what you've done. Yeah. And, you know, that's, that's, that's a real pleasure, I think, in games that kind of, uh, kind of have that response and allow you to kind of interact with it on that level to kind of see the difference between yourself and someone who's really mastered it. Definitely. And I, I think what is good about this one is it doesn't, yeah, exactly as you said there, it doesn't make you feel bad um, for not completing it in the in the perfect run it kind of just gives you that sort of encouraging thing it says like you know you get to the end you're just like all right that was a you know c uh you know c rank or whatever um but you know it's still fun and you can see the things that you achieved throughout the thing like you can make it through without any deaths and you get a bonus and you can make it through without any 
um, by taking out all the enemies and you get a bonus. So these things do add up. And it would just be really, when it comes down to it, the, the differentiating factor between someone who's really, really good and between you who's playing through it for the first time is just time, actually. And it's just a time bonus. And the quicker you can complete it, the better your score is going to be. And the you know the quicker you can kind of connect those sort of sequences together, the better your score is going to be. So you know you aren't punished for taking as long as you need. Really, you'll still get to the end of the level, um, and it'll still be quite a bit of fun. But it, there are just definitely sequences where you're like, oh man, that was cool. I imagine like you know the way that I sort of thought, planned out the puzzle and kind of approached it. It was really really a lot of fun. So that's my friend Pedro by Dead Toast Entertainment, available now on the PlayStation 4. You can pick it up on Nintendo Switch or on the PC as well if you want to give it a go on those platforms. And thank you to the developer for providing us a code to check out the game. Let's jump into the news, shall we? You're listening to Mainstream by Pixelsift. Visit us on pixelsift.com.au. Now, I know that you have let your Animal Crossing Island sort of languish, probably covered in weeds and just looking I'm, a bit grim. I'm so scared to log in and see what's <laughs> happened to it. I think it's just kind of collapsed in on itself. I think that's actually really well talks to this uh, article, which is by Nathan Grayson. Um, and talking about uh, accomplishing things in Animal Crossing um, leaves me kind of bummed is the title of this article. It's available on Kotaku and you can find a link to this in the show notes of this episode. Uh, you know, that is the, the, the sort of forward momentum of Animal Crossing is that you want to keep going through, you want to keep completing tasks, you want to keep you know building up every single day and you want to get the maximum out of every single day. And when you do lose that momentum or, or when you see that momentum come at the cost of other things, um, there is a bit of a sort of a sadness there. As, and Nathan Grayson says that you know there is a fun element of, of watching, uh, you know, getting enough bells, completing these tasks, getting enough items to, to build up your thing, getting your ranking up every single day every single day um but you know animal crossing comes at a time where we aren't able to do other things and by you know maybe everyone has other you know achievements that they're able to do outside of playing games but for for nathan it's kind of an interesting experience to kind of say well look you know i am able to complete this so much because of my isolation inside of the because of the effects of the coronavirus and COVID 19 um, but when you look at it in comparison to what other people are playing uh, or what other people have achieved in the same amount of time, it can feel, feel difficult as well. There's a bit of, you know, keeping up with the Joneses in a way or something to that effect. Um, and yeah, it's, it, it's really interesting. I know what you mean. It's like, it, that's the thing I really love about Nathan's piece. It's that, that tension and almost sadness and frustration about like when you really realize what this game is about, which is you've got to play the turnip market. Like if you if you want to build a really nice impressive island that you can invite your friends over to that you're proud of that you want to compete with everyone that's happening on YouTube that's showing off like their five star resort islands etc then you have to play the turnip market you have to full go capitalism on this thing and it, it stops being an escape from the real world and starts being an extension of the same stresses that we feel in everyday life already um, you know I think it's a really um, nuanced piece that kind of looks at why. Um, things can feel a little bit frustrating in Animal Crossing if you 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 kind of decide not to go that route and you decide to slowly um, build your island over time as in, instead of rushing to create like the best megapolis that you can in in moments. 
It is interesting, isn't it? And I, I think it is like, um, <laughs> yeah, you have to go into this completely hyper-capitalist way of... Me- and it's supposed to be like this cute little fun animal uh, animal game where there's no really defined uh, goals in it. Well, there are a few, but, you know, most of them are pretty pretty loose and you just sort of decide how you want to play this game. Um, but, yeah, it is interesting. And I guess in, in previous years on different platforms on Animal Crossing, it wasn't really as easy to share progress as it is now on the switch so i'm wondering if that sort of social factor has had a big impact on the way i mean personally i love it because i think people are really really good at doing some of the creative things in this and it gives me a lot of inspiration i'm taking it as uh, as every day as it comes and i've you know i'm not going to try and make the biggest island in the world or the most amazing thing i'm just going to make something that i look think is nice and i'll get there when i get there um, but i can totally feel the pangs that uh, nathan grayson feels in this article as well of, of you know having to Keep it, keep it the grindstone in a way. Yeah, I, I mean, like I, I've had a similar response to him, where I will go onto Twitter and I will see that someone has created the Bon Appetit YouTube test kitchen in in Animal Crossing, and be like, mm-hmm. I never would have thought of that. I do not have the creative brain for these sorts of games that are built around crafting and making your own fun. It's like I really need games that have narrative and big story moments to kind of draw me through them. And it's it's really highlighted the sort of person that I am when it comes to games. I've always struggled with this sort of stuff, particularly with games like Minecraft as well. So it's really interesting to see um, how quickly I've, I've really struggled to find meaning in Animal Crossing. And uh, I guess the other big story as well, well, I guess that's really the only story that's happening in the news is the impact of uh, coronavirus and COVID-19. We've talked a little bit about this on, on the Pixel Sift podcast. Um, we've talked about it in, in previous episodes of Mainstream as well. Um, but it, it, there, th- there's been impacts as well. I mean, one of the impacts was that Final Fantasy VII Remake came out early uh, in Australia. They just had to get it into the country as soon as they could or, or miss the boat effectively. Um, but there's also going to be sort of on going in sort of downstream effects. And that's sort of highlighted in a story that you read this week, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, like there's been a few different stories on this this whole angle that have been coming out there. I think the biggest one that people have been thinking about is that The Last of Us 2 has been delayed. Um, but I guess the next delay that I've seen online really recently is um, Final Fantasy XIV's planned uh, latest content update is being pushed back um, indefinitely, probably more to July or August as opposed to June. And, and that makes me really think about the impact that COVID-19 is going to have on games as services. Um, so I'm really interested to see, like, as we continue down this line, what will happen with games like Fortnite, what might happen with upcoming releases that are, you know, being played quite a lot right now, like Valorant or Apex Legends. I mean, like, there's there's a lot of questions to be asked about how games as a service model works during a global pandemic. Um, and, and, you know, what's going to happen to those organizations? I know that really early on in the pandemic, Final Fantasy XIV announced that they were temporarily closing some of their support centers and Q&A kind of resources um, for like, you know, accounts and account management, which is a thing that happens in MMOs. Um, if you've ever played one, you've probably put in a ticket at some point for a missing item or whatever. And they've just had to kind of like roll back some of those services they normally offer around this so now having a patch pushed back as well is kind of really interesting and the response so far from the fan community has been pretty understanding all things considered you would expect you know on the internet that people would be like why is my thing being delayed but i think that everyone kind of understands what we're in at the moment and kind of gets the the realities of it but yeah i'm i'm intrigued to see what else might be impact later on in this year 
I can imagine that maybe um, PAX Australia might not happen in the way that it normally would or might be fundamentally a very different thing. Um, there's rumors already of things like BlizzCon as well being potentially not held this year. It's too early to say, they are saying. Um, but yeah, it's. I think there'll be a lot of changes um, to the calendar this year in terms of gaming releases and maybe also... Um, you know, events as well. Definitely. I do wonder if if Doom Eternal, Final Fantasy VII Remake, and Animal Crossing are the last big, big, big AAA games that we're going to see for a little while as the impacts of this get felt more profoundly. Well, that'll be something to discuss on mainstream for sure. It's going to be really interesting to look at. I do one thing I kind of, we can never quite know the, the real truth of this, but um, for a lot of those games as a service games, they can be uh, sort of stories of, tricky working environments for the people who are inside those uh, studios. Um, I know that Riot, for example, have had similar things like this, um, Epic at one point as well. Whether or not this sort of break up work from home sort of thing might be that reset that these studios kind of need to get that balance back to the right way as they sort of reassess what is essential and what is not essential, um, but definitely one to follow. But, yeah, it's going to be an interesting couple of episodes of Mainstream if the mainstream games uh, sort of trickle to a bit of a, a small amount. Maybe we'll have to sort of reconsider what we do on this particular particular show. So, anyway. Sit down for a chat with your pals in video games. This is Mainstream by Pixelsift. So this has been Mainstream by Pixelsift. It's what video games the Pixelsift team have been playing and what they've been reading online. My name is Gianni and thanks for being part of episode 11, Adam. Yeah, my pleasure. It's uh, always good to come in and chat about all things Final Fantasy. Uh, and thanks to Ryan Fairbanks from Salty Dog Sounds for composing the mainstream theme music. Um, Adam, if people want to find you on Twitter, where can you be found? Yeah, I'm on at Adam Christie. Nice and easy. And I'm on Twitter as at G underscore DI underscore G. Uh, and you can give Pixel Sift a follow on social media as well. That's at Pixel Sift on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Just give it a search. You should be able to find us. Now, if you like this, you should also check out our other podcasts, an Australian podcast award-winning indie game show. Uh, you can search for Pixel Sift in your podcast player and look for our logo. Yeah, and we've got heaps more that you can check out. So you can head to our website to see videos, articles, and so much more. It's at pixelsift.com.au, and you can give us a rating and a review. That's pixelsift.com.au. And if you like what you've heard, uh, you can tell a mate, um, let them know about the show, get them to subscribe, and uh, they can check it out as well on the podcast player of their choice. And that's it for this episode of Mainstream. Until next time, have fun. <laughs>